started. So uh, Tehillim is uh, Tehillim's a really special thing to talk about nowadays because uh, I'm sure a lot of people have been seeing going around. Now we always are used to saying Tehillim uh, when we. When, when God forbid we know that there is somebody that is sick or it's a time of uh, trouble and Tehillim is uh, one of the defaults that we go to, one of the places that we run to uh, in order to go ahead and to connect to Hashem when we're experiencing a difficult time or where we know that somebody is shoroi bitzar when somebody else is experiencing a difficult time. Uh, one of the uh, one of the messages I got this week uh, sent me, it said, Segula, Lerefua Shlema, in the time of a Magefa. Magefa is a, a plague, and Segula is uh, like a talisman, uh, almost like a, an incantation of sorts, something that has, uh, something that has uh, magical abilities. And uh, the Segula was to say ten mizmorei tehillim, uh, ten, ka, uh, ten kapitlach, ten psalms, uh, and it came from the, uh, the Baal Smichas Chachamim. I'll tell you a little bit about the Baal Smichas Chachamim because he's such a fascinating character. Rav Naftali HaKohen Katz, uh, who lived from 1648 to 1719, was a Rav. He was a Makubal. He was an Avbeistin in Rosh Yeshiva. He had a very, very difficult life. He would uh, travel all around uh, uh, all around uh, what was Europe at the time. He was born in, in Ostrog in Ukraine. Uh, eventually he made his way to Posen, where he was a rabbi for a little bit in Poland. Uh, eventually found himself in Frankfurt am Main, and he was the Rav and had a yeshiva there at the time. Uh, he dealt, uh, he would write, he would do all kinds of interesting things. He wrote his own Sefer Torah uh, that I believe is still extant in a private collection. And um, one of the things that he did was he wrote down, uh, in what he said was a revelation to him, he wrote down Ten mizmorim, ten kapitlach of Tehillim that he uh, that he said are are good for a time of magefa, are good for a time of plague, and it's been going around. I'm happy to share with people actually afterwards if they'd like to go ahead and to. Um, and to uh, find it, he, uh, he, he was an incredible figure. There were tremendous, terrible accusations against him uh, during his lifetime. There was even a suspected Sabbateanism uh, uh, that he was suspected of. Uh, we know that that's not necessarily the case, uh, that he was a tzaddik gamor. Um, but he eventually decided he was accepted as the Rav in Sfat. And, um, and he decided that he was going to make his way to the land of Israel. If you listen to our shiurim on the journey of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov to the land of Israel, it was um, an intensely difficult journey. It was a journey of some 40 days from Europe. And the last way station before people would go to the land of Israel in those times uh, was Istanbul. And, um, and that was the major port. Rav Naftali Tzvi Akohen Katz, or better known as the Bal Smichas Chachamim, which was the name of his famous book, which connected the end of every Masechta to another. Uh, so he decided that he was going to make that trip. It was incredibly fraught. Uh, it wasn't, uh, I would say, it's not like getting on an El Al or whatever airline is still flying to Israel right now. But, uh, but it was an incredibly difficult journey. And in Istanbul, there was a plague at the time, and he died. And he was buried in Istanbul, uh, but he left with us, uh, he left many descendants from him, and he also left us with this tremendous segula, which is part of what I want to talk about today, which is uh, why we run to Tehillim and what Tehillim does for us when we experience a time of anxiety or a time of uncertainty or a time of, uh, a time of great pain, uh, which I think that we're certainly in, um, in, in certain people more than others, but that doesn't mean that we don't feel it as much. Um, and I want to talk about Tehillim's role, uh, specifically 
specifically one kind, uh, one capital of Tehillim that we're going to do tonight uh, to talk about that role. Um, just an interesting side point uh, that I was thinking about today uh, when I was thinking about Rav Naftali Katz, the Balsmicha Sechamim. He was buried in, uh, in Istanbul. He was buried. Uh, he, that, he was buried where he died. Rabbi Nachman, um, when he made his journey much, much later, uh, about a century later, Rabbi Nachman's last place before he got on the boat to go to Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Nachman's last visit was to go to the Kever, uh, the grave of the Baal Smichas Chachamim, and Rabbi Nachman daven there for his safe passage to Eretz Yisrael. The grave is still extant. I actually have a, a friend uh, last year, my friend Tully Skeist, who was on uh, Shlichut of sorts in, uh, in, in uh, Turkey with his wife. Uh, so he went to go daven there. I said, you know, Tully, you're, you're davening in the exact same place that Rabbi Nachman himself davened. I'm not so sure ma- that many Jews have been in that place in a long time. And uh, what's interesting is that Rabbi Nachman himself um, also composed 10 Mizmore Tehillim, as we've talked about in previous Shurim. He composed 10 Psalms to also be said as a special sgula, as a special talisman, as a special tool to be used at certain times. Um, I'm wondering if there's any scholarship, I have to ask some of my friends, I wonder if there's any scholarship that talks about the relationship of Rabbi Nachman and the Baal Smich a little bit more. I don't think that it's for naught that both of them decided to go ahead and to write or to compose a selection of 10 psalms from throughout the 150 psalms in Sefer Tehillim uh, to be used in special times. That's a side point, uh, just an interesting thing to think about. We've talked, we've talked in previous shurim uh, just a thumbs up if everybody could hear me, those that have their cameras on. You guys could hear me, Randy J. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm just going to check in periodically. Um, I read an article, uh, just as an aside, I read an article in the Times today uh, talking about the fact that uh, home Wi-Fi is very different than enterprise Wi-Fi, which you'd use at work. Uh, and when you have, right now it's a little bit quieter in, uh, in my house, but, um, but when you have a situation where uh, you have your kids doing their classwork or you know you have your your spouse or or anybody else that's using Wi-Fi for their work uh, it creates a tremendous tax on the bandwidth that just simply can't handle it so I've been experiencing lag uh, throughout the day but uh, I guess uh, doing things at night is a little bit better what I want to talk about tonight um, after that quick introduction what I want to talk about tonight is what does it mean to be mitbonen in Sefer Tehillim the word hitboninut uh, means comes from the word bina uh, which means a deeper kind of understanding and introspective understanding lehitbonen b'sefer Tehillim to go ahead and to not just say it but to understand uh, what we're saying and not just to understand what we're saying but after we do that to internalize it and to turn it into something that we could use uh, the Sefer that I've been using a lot in preparation of these shiurim, Tehillim Yeshua's Essa from um, the Gaon Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter, a great wrestler of Mashpia in Eretz Yisrael. So what he, uh, what he says is that there's a process when we say Tehillim. The lowest possible level is somebody says it, for example, you get that WhatsApp that says, oh, you know, some rabbi that I've never heard of, of the Baal Smichas Chachamim, said to say these 10 Tehillim when it's a difficult time. So some people might go ahead and say it. Um, they might not understand the psalms that they're saying, uh, and they, they certainly might not understand what the significance of going ahead and, um, and, and saying them in tens. What does that exactly do? So Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter says that it's incumbent upon everybody to go ahead and to be mitbonen, to learn about Sefer Tilim, to learn what they're saying and what exactly is happening when they go ahead and they say these words. Part of that is that once we understand and have a connection to Tehillim, 
So the next stage can happen. Uh, Rav Yaakov Ereshachter writes beautifully, he says a person can recognize that they could be boreach el sefer tehillim, that they could run away to sefer tehillim. That the Sefer itself and the Psalms that we say function as a sort of refuge. We talked about that last week. Michtam ledavid shamareni el ki chasisibach. A michtam of David, guard me Hashem because I've taken refuge in you. The book of Tehillim is a place to take refuge in because we've talked about the fact that it's a place where we go ahead and we find, um, we find all the possible expressions of a relationship between a human being and the divine and we express ourselves through this language. Once we're once we run to Sefer Tehillim and we find something that we're comfortable with, something that provides for us a language with which we can address our Creator, especially when we're feeling anxious, especially when we're feeling scared, especially when we're feeling times of distress, but not any less than times when we're feeling exuberance and joy and happiness and we want to express our thanks to God, the book of Tehillim carries that language so we could be mitchaber to Sefer Tehillim. So again, three stages, Lehit Bonain, to be introspective about Sefer Tilim. Then there's Livroach al Sefer Tilim. Once I understand I could run to this book, I could use it as a kind of refuge. And then once I've done that, finally the last stage is to go ahead and to be mitchaber to Sefer Tilim, is to connect to it. Once we go ahead and we're mitchaber to Sefer Tilim, so then a lot of these pithy statements that get tossed around often, you know, Hashem has a plan, or, you know, God runs the world. So that actually becomes far less than just a slogan, but it becomes something that we could actually live by. Uh, I would say that uh, if David HaMelech were teaching this year, he's not, but if he were he would tell us that <clears throat> he would tell us that our job is not to know what God's plan is per se, our job is to recognize that we're a part of it. That itself is a deeper kind of knowing. A human being cannot fully ever hope to understand what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has in store for us or the world, but to know that we're a part of it is very comforting, uh, I think a deeply um, a deeply relaxing thought. Uh, it's, it's a thought that helps us overcome so many negative thoughts, and that's, I think, what happens when one says Tehillim. So the psalm that I want to say today, I'm just going to go ahead and share my screen with everybody, uh, and uh, if you have it on your own computer, that's great as well. Uh, the psalm I want to say, uh, talk about today, sing also, is Mizmor, uh, Mizmor of Perak Chav Gimel in Mizmor Tehillim. This is a, a deeply personal uh, psalm for me. I actually had intended to teach this psalm first last week. Uh, the first reason that it's deeply personal to me is because it's one of the only psalms that I know completely by heart. Um, and uh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, I know, I, I think it's, it, I, I know it very well enough that I could say it pretty much at all times. I've used this particular capital when I'm looking for parking in Washington Heights when I was learning in YU, and I've used this particular capital uh, before I go ahead and give a shear so that the words that I say in the shear are useful and relevant to people and that uh, it's not a waste of people's time. It's kind of a catch-all uh, uh, Mizmor, and uh, we're just going to do this Mizmor tonight and unpack it and be mitbonain. We're going to be introspective about what this psalm means, and then hopefully we'll be able to recognize it's a, a psalm for us to run away to, that we could use as a tool for ourselves, and then finally to be mitchaber, to connect ourselves deeply to what it is and to understand how this provides unique spiritual language for us when we need it. Um, a, few more, a, a few more reasons. Um, you know what, I'm going to stop sharing for, for a second. I want to tell a quick story. Um, this, this mizmor, this psalm in particular, uh, is, uh, is basically an extended metaphor. The extended metaphor is the metaphor of a shepherd 
and, and, uh, and a sheep. And the speaker in Tehillim, David HaMelech in this case, David HaMelech is speaking as the sheep and God is the shepherd. Uh, that's for the majority of the psalm. It's quite short. It's actually only 57 words. Um, and uh, and it's uh, for the first few psukim, the metaphor is that of a shepherd and a sheep. And then at the end, we'll get to is the metaphor of a guest and a bal habayis. And we'll get to that at the end, hopefully. Uh, the reason that this metaphor is so amazing, besides there the fact that, as we've spoken about, David HaMelech himself knew the experience of a shepherd and a sheep from his own personal experience as a shepherd. So besides that is that uh, it's it's a it's a it, it functions on its own. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, many years ago, I uh, I participated in a summer program. I was a counselor on a program run by uh, by Kent Moshava called TVI Torah Avoda Institute. I don't know if it's still around. Um, I don't know if it's still uh, it's still a thing. But the idea was is that at a particular age, um, so I think he was going into junior year of high school. So at a particular age, about 150, not a stam number, 150 uh, students would come and they would spend half the day doing chesed, there would be shiurim, there'd be um, sports in the afternoon, very relaxed, but it was all in Israel. And, uh, and I was one of the counselors. I took the job. I'd never been involved with, um, with B'nai Akiva before. And uh, my friend Rabbi Dan Katz told me this might be a good idea for you. I think you should do this. Uh, I, I jump fast, fast forward just to tell you the significance of this program for me. Um, it was based on this program and my experiences teaching in this program that I decided that I wanted to be an educator. I decided that that's what I had wanted to do with myself. That's how powerful it was. So for the few days before camp started and we were awaiting the arrival, of the campers, uh, we would do certain team-building activities. You have to remember, we had this whole campus to ourselves in Kfar Haroe uh, in Israel, which is right near Chadeira. And, um, and, and we were basically going to be running everything on our own. So we did a whole bunch of team-building activities. One of them stands out. Uh, we went to a place called Neot Kedumim. Neot Kedumim, I, I think it's still extant. Neot Kedumim is an outdoor experience. Uh, they have all kinds of uh, different, they, I think they focus on team-building exercises. We did all kinds of different, uh, different events. And then they took us for the final event. They take us back to the other side of a ridge, and we see that there is a corral. And inside the corral is, sure enough, a flock of sheep. And uh, we had our guide, and our guide was classic Israeli, you're going to figure it out. And all of us are a little bit nervous. I've never really uh, done anything with sheep before. And, uh, and he told us, here's what you need to know. He says, when you, when you have a flock, he says, it's important to recognize that you don't push, but you pull. You're gently pulling. And you go ahead, and by gently pulling, you'll be able, once one sheep follows you, the rest of the sheep, the rest of the flock is going to follow you. I have to tell you how overwhelming it is to see a large flock. I mean, these were only like 20 sheep. Uh, he said to us that there are flocks that number into the thousands, hundreds of sheep, and that a single person, a single shepherd is able to go ahead and to manage that entire flock. Never mind that we were barely able to handle one sheep. Within about 15 minutes, we were all running around chasing sheep. I'm like, do I hold it? Do I grab it? I don't know what to do over here. And eventually, we managed to get all the sheep into the corral. Uh, a lot of uh, falling down, a lot of uh, ignominy, and a lot of, uh, a lot of failures, but eventually we were able to do it. Then our guide sits down and he opens up Mizmor Chaf Gimel. 
And he says, let me read you Mizmor Chav Gimel, and let me tell you, now you understand, now you've actually lived what it is to be a shepherd and a sheep. And that's why I say that this mashal, the, the metaphor that, that uh, animates this psalm, the metaphor is not just one that functions as a metaphor for our relationship with God, but it's a metaphor that could be a lived metaphor also. Let's go ahead and read uh, the Mizmor and... Um, and you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. And I want you to keep focus on the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep as being a very real life thing. And that's part of why this uh, mizmor is so precious and dear to me, uh, because, uh, because I, I live this mizmor, because uh, myself and my fellow counselors at TVI, so we had the ability to go ahead and to actually uh, live this particular capital of Tehillim. I'm going to read it first in Hebrew. Uh, then I'm going to go ahead and read in English. After I go ahead and do that, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to hopefully jump right into it and explain a number of ideas that jump out from this particular mizmor. Mizmor leDavid Adonai Roi Lo Echsar Binaozdeshe Yar Bitzeni Al Mei Menuchos Yenahaleini Navshi Yishoivev Yancheni B'Maagle Tzedek Lema'an Shemo Gam Ki Eilech Begeitz Amaves Lo Yirara Ki Atoi Madi. Shiftecha umishantecha heima yena chamuni. Taroich lefanai shulchan neged soirai. Dishante bashemen roishi koisi revoya. Ach toiv vachesed ir defuni kolyeme chayai. Vishavti beves adoinai li orech yomim. And now in English. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul, guideth me in straight paths for his name's sake. Yea, I walk, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's the Mizmor. And the English, is, uh, the English is resonant because especially this particular line, Pasuk Dalid, is, is extremely famous, is uh, very well known because I think it speaks to a very deep human experience, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil because God is together with us. But I don't want uh, to get ahead of ourselves. So I think it's worth asking first, what is the theme of this particular Mizmor of Tehillim? What exactly is the idea over here? I think it's important to ask with every single time that we say a capital of Tehillim, uh, what exactly is the theme? What's David HaMelech communicating to us in this outpouring of his soul? I think that the theme of this Mizmor Tehillim uh, needs to be understood in contradistinction to the Mizmor that comes right before it. If, uh, you know what, I, don't, I didn't put this on the sources, but let me show you, for example, Mizmor um, Chaf Beis. Here's Mizmor Chaf Beis. Let's take a look. We'll take the first source that comes up. Here's Mizmor Chafbeis, the, the psalm that immediately precedes it. The psalm that immediately precedes it is called Lamanatseach Alayeles HaShachar. Lamanatseach Alayeles HaShachar, Chazal tell us that this was the Mizmor that Esther Hamalka said right before she went into Achashverosh's inner chambers to ask for, uh, to ask for, for her, uh, the ability to invite, she was coming in Shalok Kedas to ask for the ability to go ahead and to begin the comeuppance of Haman. Uh, we know this because we have this line over here. 
Eli, Eli, lama azavtani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This, was, uh, this is seen to be parallel to Esther saying in the Megillah, Ka'asher avaditi, ahavaditi. As I have surely been lost, I am now lost. Esther said, okay, Mordechai is asking me to go in to do this mission. Uh, I'm taking my own life in my hands and really the future and the fate of the Jewish people, especially in Shushan, is only in my hands right now. And she said, uh, you know, if I lose, I lose. And if I'm killed, I'm killed, but I have to go ahead and do this. I don't have a choice in the matter. And that's what's expressed in this Mizmor of Tehillim. Keili, keili, lama azavtani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Rachok mi yeshuasi, divrei sha'agasi. I find myself far from salvation. I find myself distant from experiencing salvation. These were the words, this was the Mizmor that Esther said before she went into the chamber of Achashverosh. If I were to, if we were to spend time on that mizmor tehillim, you would find out that this mizmor chafbeis uh, is basically detailing what happens when a person feels abandoned by God. Uh, what happens when a person feels that God is no longer with them, uh, that God is distant from their lives? God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? How could you let me get into this situation? And in Mizmor Chav Gimel, in our particular psalm that we're studying, there is a decided change in tone. Instead of talking about what happens in difficult times when we feel that God has abandoned us, instead, the interaction and the speaker talks about what it feels like to totally throw oneself into God's embrace and to feel that God's protective embrace is controlling everything around them. It is a total 180 from what happens in the psalm right before it. And if you pay close attention to the order of the Mizmore Tehillim, you'll see this kind of theme happening often. That it's not, even though the Tehillim are self-contained units, And even though some of the Tehillim follow, for example, all the Mikhtams follow one another, all of the Shir Hamalos follow one another later on in the 120s, but when we go ahead and we look at the book of Tehillim as a collection of 150 chapters, so there's always going to be this interplay between the psalm before and the psalm after. Not always is it as clear and as and as uh, obvious as, uh, as the case of Mizmor Chafbet, which details abandonment of God, dus uh, abscondidus, when God runs away from us, uh, than it is in Mizmor Chafgimel, which is when a person runs to God and says, no, you haven't given me up and I haven't given you up, God. I'm, I am your sheep uh, and you are my, I, we're your fl- I'm your sheep and you're my shepherd, we're your flock. Um, uh, that is that is the expression in this Sefer Tehillim. Uh, that is the uh, Ma'avar over here. Another thing, just before we jump deep into the psalm itself, is that this particular Mizmor is ubiquitous. Um, this Mizmor Tehillim comes up constantly. Uh, for example, in Nusach Sfard, in, 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 uh, in any sort of Kabbalistic custom, uh, the Mizmor is said three times on Shabbos. Uh, it's said before every Kiddush, that we make, that comes from the Shar HaKavanos. Shur Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal, uh, told us that in his Jushe uh, Kiddush HaShabbos, in Shar HaKavanos, which is a book of intentions and Kabbalistic uh, understandings of the various mitzvot, uh, how to perform the mitzvot with proper intent, according to the Arizal. Shur Chaim Vital writes in Jushe Kiddush HaShabbos, so he talks about this particular mizmor, he says that it should be said before making Kiddush uh, all three times on Shabbos. Some people even have the minag to sing it three times at Shalashodis itself. We have other opinions that say, uh, 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 apparently the shla 
HaKadosh. Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz uh, tells us that we should be saying this to Hillim right after we uh, cut bread for Hamotzi and eat the first piece of bread. And he says a rem as a hint to that is that there are 57 tevot, there are 57 words in this particular mizmor. The 57 words in this particular mizmor correspond to the Hebrew word zan, hazan esa'olam kulo betuvo, which means to sustain. So he says part of the kavana, part of the intent when breaking bread is to immediately transition to saying this tehillim to remind us uh, that uh, it's only by dint of our relationship with God that we have the bread, our daily bread to eat. So that's a, a, a nice little remez. Zan, 57 words, corresponding to the word that means sustenance. There's also other opinions that say that it should be said before eating the preyets chayim, also Kabbalistic uh, svarim tell us, uh, and the Mishnah's chasidim tell us as well, that it should be said uh, right prior to eating, that for some reason, and I want you to think about this, I don't believe that we'll have time to go ahead and to fully address this, that for some reason this particular mizmor is deeply connected uh, to finding our sustainment and finding our fulfillment in God, giving us our daily bread and food to eat. Um, can I tell another quick story? Is that okay? How, how are we doing? Just, I see only two faces. Um, uh, okay, awesome. So I want to, um, thanks guys. I want to go ahead. It would be so strange to give this sheer just facing uh, uh, an empty screen. Um, that would be chaval. Um, but um, but uh, here's the story. Rabbi Riskin, who I spoke with his son this week is uh, is doing great and is fine. Uh, and never was uh, never was ill. Baruch Hashem uh, was just in quarantine, basically like everybody else in Israel. And uh, Rabbi Riskin was in Lincoln Square for a Shabbos, I believe, it was two years ago. Um, and uh, and Baruch Hashem, I've been zochet to develop a little bit of a relationship with Rabbi Riskin, who I looked up, who I look up to very much. So here's the story. Um, Rabbi Riskin was hanging out with me before Shacharis, and we were sitting in my office, and I was showing Rabbi Riskin the wall of rabbinic personalities pictures that I have in my office. Uh, Jay, I know you've seen it. Randy, I think you've seen it also. Uh, so I have a, a book. It's called in, uh, uh, in Hebrew, it's called the Kirash Ra'a, uh, an inspiration wall. And I look at my rabbis, my heroes, and I, and I say, okay, you know, when, when will I get to be like them? Probably with a lot of hard work that I don't have the capacity for. But, uh, but I had this wall. And Rabbi Riskin and I were playing the game of going through, it's a good conversation piece, playing the game of going through all the rabbinic personalities and Rabbi Riskin, of course, was going through each one. He's like the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He was telling me stories about him and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And then we got to a picture of the Alter Kleisenberger Rebbe. Rabbi Kisilya de Taidovam. So we went ahead and uh, Halberstam, sorry. And, uh, and, we, and, and Rabbi Riskin told me, he says, you know, you know, he said uh, that, uh, that I used to daven in a minion. Apparently the Kleisenberger was in Manhattan for some time and Rabbi Riskin participated in a minion for the Kleisenberger Rebbe. And Rabbi Riskin, uh, Rabbi Riskin said, I have a story to tell you about the Alter Kleisenberger Rebbe, an amazing vort that the Kleisenberger told me, an amazing Dvar Torah. Uh, and then his son Yoni came in and said, you know, Dad, we have to go into Shul. This conversation can continue all of Shacharis. And um, so fine, so we walked into Shul, and, um, and it comes to the end of davening, 
and uh, I guess Alan, I don't know if it was uh, Alan's tenure as president, but the Shul president uh, is, gets up to make announcements at the end of davening, and after the announcements, uh, usually uh, I, that Shabbos, Rabbi Robinson, uh, make Kiddush for the Shul. Now my personal custom is, before I make Kiddush, uh, to go ahead and to say Mizmor Ledavid, uh, as we do upstairs every Shabbos. That's my custom, it's nice, I know it by heart, and it goes directly into Tehillim, it's a good way to, to, to shush the room, and it's also a nice way to focus oneself before uh, saying to Hillen. So I'm talking to Yoni on the side. Uh, we're having a conversation in Hebrew and I miss my cue to go ahead and to make uh, Alan or the president must have said, and now Rabbi Rosenfeld will make Kiddush for the shul. I missed my cue and I, 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 I realized, oh no, I have to go ahead and I have to uh, make Kiddush for everybody. And now I have a dilemma. My dilemma is, is do I make a big deal and say Mizmor Ledavid out loud? It's going to look like a little bit, uh, it's going to look a little bit snooty, like uh, I'm just showing people I know it by heart. Uh, but it is my custom. And also, it's, um, it's like the way that I do things. It would feel weird not to do it. And then I said to myself, but I can't make people wait. So I went ahead and I made Kiddush for the shul. And I didn't say Mizmor Ledavid before at that the time. It was like a little bit like, ah, okay, did I sell out? Was I not doing the right thing? After I make Kiddush, Rabbi Riskin calls me over, okay? He says, you know, Josh, I wanted to finish the Dvar Torah from the Kleisenberger Rebbe. I said, oh, right, yes, what was the Dvar Torah? He said, the Kleisenberger Rebbe told me that in Kapitel Chaf Gimel of Tehillim, Mizmor Lidavid Hashem Roi Lo Echsar, and I'm looking at him, I'm like, was I saying something out loud? Was, can he read my thoughts right now? How does... And he says, the Kleisenberger told me, and let's take, a look at the, let's take a look at the verse because of how powerful this idea is. Uh, such a beautiful idea. He said, the Alter Kleisenberger Rebbe told me, he said, when I was in the camps, he said, I got a new pshat. The, the Kleisenberger lost uh, 11 children in the Holocaust and in, uh, in the camps. The Kleisenberger suffered tremendously. He said, when I read this Pasuk, this famous verse, yeah, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I fear no evil, for you are with me. Kleisberger says the regular way of reading this particular Pasuk, this is what he told Rabbi Riskin, and Rabbi Riskin was now telling me, the ordinary way of reading this Pasuk is to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil because you are with me. The Kleisberger went ahead and he said, when I was in the camps and we were all suffering, so I learned new pshat. I learned a new understanding of this particular tilim. And like a Hasidic Rebbe says, it's just about where you go ahead and put the kama, about how you render the pasuk a little differently. He says it should be read like this. Gam ki Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, kama, lo ira, kama. And we could make a semicolon over here. Lo ira. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I should not have any fear. It is muvan me'ilav. It is understood on its own that a believing Jew always would resort to God and always has that refuge of God and faith in order to run to in difficult and trying and scary and anxiety-ridden times. However, a Jew that's close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that truly believes that Hashem runs the world, that truly believes that Hashem uh, interferes and is intimately involved in human affairs, reads it like this, Ra ki imadi. He says, it is bad though that you're here with me. 
The Kleisenberger told Rabbi Riskin, he says that people that are especially close to God, they recognize that God suffers with us. Now he says, the Shechinta Vigalusa, the Shechina itself also goes into exile with us. There is this concept of Tsar Hashchina, right? Bechol Tsar Rasam, Lo Tsar. In all of their sufferings, the Navi Yeshaya tells us, in the Torah it's written, Lo Lamed Aleph, but we, in the Torah it's written, Lo with Lamed Aleph, meaning as if Hashem doesn't feel our pain. The rabbi said that we read it with a Lamed Vav. It's a cognate. Lo, right? Lo, uh, Lo Tsar. Bechol Tsarasam Lo Tsar. In all of the pain of the Jewish people, Hashem feels pain also. Hashem suffers together with us as well. What an important concept to recognize that the King of all kings, that the creator of universe shares in our pain as well. What a comforting thought uh, to the extent that we could understand it. So the Kleisenberger said he recognized in the camps it's terrible that God has to be dragged down in here into these camps together with me. Now that's, that's an amazing madrega. That's, a, that's an incredible level. I don't know if everybody is able to be zocha, can merit to have that sort of a level. But that seems to be the way that a tzaddik, the way that somebody that's already been mitbonein, that's internalized, that's been mitchaber, that's connected, and runs away to Sefer Tehillim, that's how they start to think of Sefer Tehillim. Their understanding, the way that they feel about it, the way that they connect to it, becomes totally different to the extent that you're basically writing your own Tehillim. I'll put it this way, it's definitely not pshat, what the Kleisenberger said. It's not the simple understanding, but it's a deeper, what we would call omek hapshat, a deeper understanding of what happens when Tehillim becomes a part of us and when we live Tehillim. Now, a separate part of the story is how did Rabbi Riskin know that that's what was going through my mind, this particular Mizmor Tehillim, or that this was the continuation of the conversation from you know, hours before. I'll leave that up to you, the listener, to think about. But uh, just an interesting shot in one of these psukim. Uh, with our time left, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other psukim. And, uh, and again, uh, I, I'm sorry for jumping back and forth from sharing the screen. I, I hope I'm not giving people whiplash. But let's take a look at some of the uh, Psalms' uh, words and deeper meanings of it. So the first thing is, Mizmor David Hashem Roi Lo Echsar. Echsar means I shall not lack, I shall not want. This notion of that everything that I need is in front of me, everything that I need is here right now, that when we find our refuge in God, so that becomes... <clears throat> That becomes, uh, that becomes a sense of sipuk, of satisfaction. And uh, perhaps that's what we say, maybe that's why the Kabbalists told us that this mizmor uh, is deeply connected with the act of eating, especially in a su'uda, recognizing that in front of me is all I had. I thought about this this week, especially with uh, you know, uh, seeing uh, the madness that was Trader Joe's and uh, Fairway and uh, a deep sense and I'll admit to it also, uh, certainly cop to it, a deep sense of, uh, of fear of what would happen if we were to lack. Lack toilet paper, lack diapers, lack uh, water, um, the things that we rely upon in order to get by. Um, this was uh, definitely, this particular line was on my mind this week as I went ahead and uh, tried not to hoard Baruch Hashem. I followed those instructions to some extent. Um, but the sense of panic buying and the sense of feeling lack, Mizmor Ledavid, Hashem Roi Lo Echsar, I shall not lack. That's what means making Tehillim live. That's what means uh, that, uh, that when we talked about in the earlier Shrim and we kept on hammering down this idea that Tehillim connect to our lives and are relevant now, so these words came to my mind as I was walking the aisles in, uh, in, in, in Fairway. Mizmor Ledavid, Hashem Roi Lo Echsar. The next thing is that a lot of the words over here 
are talking about a double entendre. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, that they have a double meaning. This is talking about the shepherd goes ahead and hits the sheep with the staff and moves the sheep along. We don't have enough time to talk about the theme of the seven shepherds, the fact that many of the great leaders of Israel were all shepherds before they assumed their role of, of being shepherds of God's flock, like Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, I'll just show you... Um, uh, actually, I'm not going to waste people's time. The, the computer thing is very bad for me because I immediately, if I feel that there's a tangent to go to, I immediately go there. And that's never, here, I'll show it to you. Um, let me see. Let me see if I could find it. One second. I just, uh, I just unshared. All right, check this out for a second. Just to show you, um, I gave a shear in uh, Manhattan Day School as it's loading, and the shear was talking about what are the qualities of a leader. Uh, and uh, I asked people to create a list of five character traits, and we see, The way that Moshe Rabbeinu, a shepherd too, the way that he moved them along was that he used his staff and his rod to move them along. And uh, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, this famous Midrash, that Moshe Rabbeinu ran after the young goat uh, and brought it back to the flock. So that is this idea of the shepherd always, always, always worrying and caring about even the smallest of the flock. Yarbitseni, though, is a strange word because in modern Hebrew, laharbits. I'll pause for a moment because it says, ah, and we're back. So laharbits in modern Hebrew means to beat somebody. Laharbits means to go ahead and to smack somebody. But yarbitseni in this pastoral scene, Benoz Desha, in these green pastures to be hit, that sometimes is what we need. We need to be uh, jolted awake. We need to be moved along. And certainly in my experience with the sheep in Neot Kidumim, sometimes you have to go ahead. The sheep were going to be fine. You could, you, could, you could give them a little smack with the rod because that's what's going to get them going. And he told us that every shepherd does this and you're not hurting the sheep at all. And then if we accept that, so if we accept that prodding, if we accept it hopefully gentle, so we'll be able to be led to these uh, sustaining waters. Another double entendre that I want to talk about over here is the famous shiftecha umish'antecha, right? So David HaMelech doesn't waste words in Tehillim. David HaMelech, every word is, uh, the, the words of the poet, every word is exact. A shevet is a staff, and a mish'an is something to lean on. A staff can be a cane. It could be something to lean on when you're feeling infirm or when you're feeling uh, a sense of uh, lack of balance or lack of rootedness. And a shevet is a little bit different. Shevet is the same staff which could be used to go ahead and institute discipline. Uh, we say in Mishle, Chosech Shifto Sonei Beno, somebody that spares the rod from their child. This is admittedly um, outmoded, I think, for our times. But somebody that spares his child the staff is, uh, in essence, hating them, which means... In our modern context, that sometimes children do need consequences. Sometimes when you're teaching people, you do need to teach them hard lessons, hopefully never ever with anything physical. But shevet is the staff of hitting, is also the same staff that we lean on and we find our, uh, our balance on. So another double entendre over here. 
And this is, uh, this is something that goes throughout this particular small psalm of Tehillim. There's so much in here. Just a few more ideas. Verse number three. That's uh, an important thing. This describes, certainly if you read this in conjunction with Psalm 22, of a person that feels that God has abandoned them and that they're lost and alone and without a rudder in the world, so uh, a person might feel um, totally out of sorts. I think we would characterize this as a kind of deep, deep anxiety. What's going to happen next? How could, how could I rely on anything when I feel that God has abandoned me? Keli, keli, lama zavtani. How could I rely on anything? My salvation is distant. In this psalm, we find the speaker, we find David HaMelech calming down. Nafshi Yeshovev. Once I'm led, Yeshovev. A deep breath. A deep understanding that everything is going to be okay. This is, uh, I think, um, I think this is, um, I'll give you an example of what I think this might be like in modern terms. Uh, another article uh, in the Times recently, I, I guess this is on everybody's mind, was talking about anxiety and what it means to live in anxious times. And uh, the speaker was uh, particularly, uh, um, the, the author was particularly eloquent in talking about this. And uh, she apparently has a book coming out on living in an age of anxiety. And she says that she tried every therapy in the book and she was logical about it and she understood where her failings were. The first therapy that she found that allowed her to go ahead and to find some semblance of normalcy within the anxiety that she was experiencing was this notion, I think it's called ACT. I see that Lenny is here. Uh, Lenny, can I unmute you for a second? Lenny, do you know anything about ACT? I just unmuted you. Lenny, do you know anything about ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy? Okay, I guess, he's, uh, I guess he's not there for the time being. She said that there was something called acceptance and commitment therapy. She said that this therapist was not telling her to bottle away her anxieties. This therapist was saying that the only way to conquer them or the only way to live with them was to accept that this is part of life, that this is part of your experience, this is part of how a person functions in the world. Once you accept that, so then you're able to get to a point of nafshi yeshovev, I think, that you're able to go ahead. Uh, she said that the phrase that that her therapist kept on using was dive into your anxiety. Uh, she even said that she gave her anxiety a name. She called her anxiety Susan. Uh, that was the name of her anxiety. And she said, now Susan is with me. Now Susan is together in this situation with me. And once that anxiety became something embodied, so then it was something that she was able to deal with. We have time for one or two more. Uh, I want to talk about Gates Amaves. Gates Amaves is the valley of the shadow of death. Why is this such a... A powerful metaphor, uh, why is this something that's used often, is sometimes the flock is led to places where they're uncertain. What happens when you're leading a flock is that one sheep will always follow the other and they'll move together as a flock. They'll follow the leader and they'll follow the shepherd if they trust in the shepherd that the shepherd is taking them to the right place. Uh, Lenny, I see that you have your hand raised. You're unmuted. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually here. I'm just, I just was on another computer. I mean, I'm actually watching, but I... Now I'm on my cell phone, but I have no I have no microphone on my desktop computer, so I couldn't respond. Ah, so Sorry, L- Lenny. Have you heard of ACT therapy? Of course, of course. Acceptance therapy. Yes. Acceptance yeah. and commitment therapy. I needed I needed a I needed a professional practitioner to back me up on that. And I was saying, yes. Lenny, that acceptance and co- after a person feels 
the rudderlessness and the anxiety of being left and abandoned by God in this world, to say nafshi yeshoved, to be laid down and to allow me to, uh, to find myself in the circles of God's embrace is, I think, tantamount or, or at least a cognate of what this uh, woman was experiencing when her psychologist told her that you accept and you bring in your anxiety and you live with it. And once you accept it, you're able to go ahead and to finally settle down. Now, obviously, I'm not That's a practitioner. It's correct. That's totally correct. Thank you so much, Lenny. I'm just going to go ahead. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and continue. Maybe we'll finish with this idea of Gam Kielich Begay Tzamavis, that this idea of Tzamavis, Rashi says it's just a word for darkness. But on a deeper level, Tzamavis uh, is another thing that comes into my experiences. And uh, maybe we'll end with this. Uh, in Sahal, uh, very early on, in Sahal, um, they told us that the most dangerous time, uh, they've done uh, studies on this, they have military intelligence on this, hope I'm not giving away any secrets, uh, the military intelligence says that the majority of terror attacks uh, on IDF installations happened at a time called Dimdumim. Dimdumim comes from Dimyon, a time of shadows, a time of illusions, and that happens, you, wouldn't, you would think it would be in the dead of night, that would be when, uh, when people go ahead and ambush. It's not then. The time that's most dangerous when you're in an exposed, um, an exposed position or base, the time that's most dangerous is this time of dimdumim. Dimdumim is early in the morning when the sun has not yet risen and it's not, yet, it's not still nighttime anymore. And in the nighttime when the sun has not yet set, uh, we call it bein ashmashos, uh, but it's still quite dark. That's the time that historically there's been more attacks than any others. And our officers explained to us that it's because during the daytime everybody's able to see. And at the nighttime you have the advantage that you could use thermal imaging or you could use night vision, but night vision is ineffective at that time because it's not fully light and it's not fully dark. This in-between time of Dim Dumim, this Salmavis, I think, is not an ordinary darkness. It's a sail. It's a darkness of shadows. It's a darkness of illusions. It's a darkness that's an existential darkness. It's a darkness that's not just an absence of light, but a darkness that is a time of confusion, Dim Dumim. And that is Tzal Mavis. That is the shadow of death. The shadow of death is not a time when the sun is going down. It's not a time that is temporal. It's a time that's existential. And when we talk about Selmavis, is a time that we experience a, a creeping sense of doom, a creeping sense that the shadow of death is creeping into our lives and that we've lived up to now without the shadow of death. We've lived up to now in what people might say is a blissful ignorance. Life is good. We go to the supermarket, we buy our toilet paper and we don't have issues with it. And we go to shul and we go ahead and we join our, we send our kids off to school and everything is normal. And there's not this creeping sense that something is coming into our lives, an uninvited guest, something that doesn't belong here and is coming into this place and I believe that right now the last uh, week or so I, I said to somebody uh, you knew I would talk about this but but the the last week or so I said to my wife last night if you were to ask three days ago if what was happening now was going to happen you would say that's unimaginable and if you were going to go three days before that you would say and, and, and ask six days ago what happened three days ago you'd say we're going to close shul really we're going to close school until Pesach? Really? Is, are, are you, 
it would have been unimaginable and it, and it is the sense of anxiety in projecting to the future and thinking what that future might look like and the recognition that we have to rely on God because we absolutely have no handle on our future. What a, what a creeping feeling of this sense of waiting for catastrophe. That is Tzel Mavis. So what do we do in a time of Tzel Mavis? So we, uh, we act like the Kleisenberg, we act like our tzaddik, and we say, Gan ki Yeah, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I have nothing to fear. I don't know if we could be at the level of the Kleisenberg or Rebbe. Rabbi Riskin explained it to me. I don't believe that that's something that's uh, in the, uh, the province of, of every ordinary human being. But a regular human being, and this is universal, this doesn't just apply to Jews, a regular human being knows to say that in the valley of the shadow of death, that we do not have fear because even though we can't project into the future, and even though we have this creeping sense of tzalmavas, this dimdumim, this sense of confusion and lack of understanding of what the situation is, it wasn't for naught that this was the most dangerous time that they said that that tzal experiences. When you're left, when you're left, is that is that a person? Is that an animal? Am I just looking at shadows? That's some of us. It's an existential. It's not temporal. But to be able to go ahead and to say, to recognize that sometimes the staff of God that we feel hitting us is the same staff of the shepherd that we lean on when we're feeling shaky. I daven, I, I feel bad. I know that I'm over time already. I feel bad because I really wanted to get to the second half. Maybe we'll touch upon this next week. The second half of the Mizmor goes ahead and it changes the metaphor to a guest and a balabas, uh, a guest coming into somebody else's home. Um, and I wanted to read to you, uh, maybe I'll share it in a shul email, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, um, who we also started off, and I said we're always connecting our last series to our new series. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov has a famous story called Masa Meoreach, the story of the guest. What's amazing about the story of the guest, you know what, I'm just going to share the story of the guest, and you could, see why, uh, you could see why I find this so important. Here it is. Uh, I'm going to share it to you in English, and I'm going to put it in the chat right now um, because uh, what's, uh, what's so awesome, you could see, uh, reach out to me uh, if you'd like afterwards. I put the story there. Uh, it's a story about a person who's homebound, stuck in their house, and uh, a guest, the tzaddik, comes and joins them, and the tzaddik, with the tzaddik, with the, with the person that's able to teach them faith and to teach them emunah in Hashem, to teach them what to do when Salmavis is there, so they're able to fly to the far stretches of the world. And each time, three times in the story, the oreach, uh, the the guest, basically tells the balabas who's left his house, who's anxious, "Can I can I follow you into the darkness? Can I go ahead and leave my house?" He says, he says, just turn around, and he finds himself staying in his own house. So hopefully by learning together, we could go ahead and we could continue to connect through Torah. We could continue to connect uh, through community, uh, even if it's virtual uh, or through a screen. Uh, I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. Mirz Hashem, we're going to continue next Monday night, Bez Hashem, with Tehillim number six. Uh, we did not even finish an entire Mizmor Tehillim this week. Uh, I'd like to start off next week talking a little bit about Masa Meoreach, uh, which is, I would say, Rabbi Nachman's story for anybody 
that's in quarantine or stuck at home or practicing as they should be social distancing and spending a lot more time at home than they should, what it means to use emuna and to use Torah and to use tzaddik and to catapult to the farthest reaches of the world. And Be'ezus Hashem, Hashem should guide us and we should find a place of nafshi yeshovev and God should place all of us on me menuchos and ma'agalit tzedek lema'an shemo. I thank everybody uh, for, uh, for joining us tonight. Everybody's uh, unmuted just to say goodbye. And um, thanks, thanks for learning together with me.